said, you know, fall in love with your craft. Be an artist. He said, you're, he, he, he's the one who told me, he said, you're an artist. Be an artist. Embrace the fact that you're an artist. I had never thought about that before. I never thought that I was an artist. I thought I was a singer in a rock and roll band, you know, or a pop group or something. And Welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast from my book of the same name, where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment in the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book, as well as some artists I love and respect. Today's guest is the multi-talented Dig Wayne. He started out in a rockabilly band in New York City called Buzz and the Flyers, building a name for themselves and even opening for The Clash. Bernie Rhodes, the Clash's manager at the time, invited Dig to London should he ever break up the band. He pretty much immediately left New York for London, and Bernie introduced him to members of the band The Subway Sect. They joined forces and created a new band, The Joe Boxers. In 1983, they'd score a successful run of hits with Boxer Beat, which was a big hit in the UK, and Just Got Lucky, which scored in the United States. Dig tells us about this journey from a kid in Ohio through New York and London and finally to Los Angeles, and all the pivotal moments in between. Well, the most uh, the most memorable, well, not memorable because it's been a long time ago, but the thing that I've always gone back to that was that really changed me and and, uh, and I it just changed my outlook on the entire world and myself was when I was a kid and I saw I saw uh, the wild one on television, Marlon Brando. It's like on a Saturday afternoon, you know, black and white movie. I'm a kid, you know, the movie was made in I think 1950 or something 53 it's an old movie it's the classic movie of him in the motorcycle jacket and you've got the, the motorcycle gang with lee marvin's the rival gang and they storm into this small town and terrorize these people in this small town and uh i never i'll never forget watching that and thinking to myself where what world is this because my world uh you know in ohio being a kid in ohio everything was uh I don't remember any violence. I don't remember any real racism. Uh, you know, being black, growing up in a small town in the Midwest, there were there were black families around, and uh, the schools were mixed. But and there there was no hint of racism that I was even aware of. I was a kid, so that there were probably things going on that I wasn't conscious of. But at the end of the day, no one seemed to mistreat me because of my race or anything like that. So I didn't know anything about that. So. Um, I didn't know crime or violence. And so watching this movie and see these guys being mean and pushing people around and fighting in the streets, uh, I found that very exciting. God, what world is that? Where, where can I go and see that? Uh, it wasn't like I had a thirst for violence, but it was very exciting to see it because I wasn't used to it. I was too young to think about these being actors in a movie. So, um, so uh, that really that really had an effect on me. It really moved me. It touched me, and because it, it's a it's a good film. I mean, it's a B movie, but it's a good film because you know he gets his comeuppance in the end. He doesn't 
he doesn't get away with it. Something horrible happens, someone gets killed, and he's got to answer for it, and they take his motorcycle away. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's, he, you know, it, it's not like glorified. And uh, that really moved me. And seeing that was the kind of catalyst to a lot of things. But after seeing that, I didn't kind of go back to that until after I saw uh, Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, that's right, Elvis Presley. That really just shook me up beyond, you know, I just, it was just something I'd never seen before. I don't think anybody had. And also being a kid, I think he was first on the, on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1956 or 57. I mean, he's going back a long time. And, uh, and I thought, wow, all these girls were screaming for him, the way he was moving around. I thought, what is going on here? You know, he shook up the world. He really did. I know Muhammad or Cassius Clay said, I shook up the world. But Elvis Presley, you know, he definitely shook up the world at that time. And seeing that made me want to be a rock and roll star. That's when I became aware of rock and roll and I wanted to be a rock and roll star. My mother used to listen to R&B records. She had a you know big stack of 45s, R&B. She had Gene Vincent, Bebop Alula. So I was aware of rock and roll. I had never heard the word rockabilly before, but um, I was aware of rock and roll. So seeing the effect of someone singing rock and roll had on the girls, you know, of course, me a boy, you know, I thought, wow, this is something I want the girls to scream for me. I want to do that. So I thought that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a rock and roll star. So uh, then I saw the then I saw the Beatles on television and I thought, wow, look at that. That, that was a, another, you know, earth shaking experience. And uh, then I thought I got to I got to have a band. I got to figure out how I can be a rock and roll star. So I tried to play the guitar. It was too complicated. My fingers didn't work on the strings very well. So I thought maybe I can play the drums. And so uh, my parents got me a, a, a drum set. They bought me a drum set. And uh, so I started practicing my drums. They paid for lessons. I went to sit in this little room with this guy on Saturday afternoons. And he showed me how to do paradiddles and flams and all these things to learn how to play the drums. He was a jazz drummer, so he showed me how to hold the drumsticks like Charlie Watts did, you know, not like Ringo did, but like Charlie Watts, kind of a, that jazz standard style. So I, I became a pretty good drummer, and I, I knew I could sing. My sister and I used to sing the Motown records and stuff, so I knew I could sing a little bit. So I thought, well, I can sing and play the drums. Maybe that's all I need to know how to do right now. So I I, you know, I, I, where I took music lessons was, was a music, music store in town. And uh, I told my teacher, I wanted to maybe play with some other guys. So he said, oh, there's a guitar player here. And, you know, other kids taking music lessons. So we started a little band. <laughs> we were pathetic, but we really tried. And I was singing and playing the drums. And uh, that's when I, then after that, I saw the Rolling Stones on television. And that was a real shift for me because, I realized that Mick Jagger up there in the front, that's where I needed to be. I didn't need to be in the back singing, playing the drums. And so I thought, okay, I, I, I can sing. I need to be standing up there so all the girls will scream for me. <laughs> you know, I can become a rock and roll star. So, so that's what I did. I got another kid to play the drums. And so we had a little band and I was singing in the front. And, you know, we had fun. We had fun. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was the beginning of something. Um, uh, I think the next pivotal time in my life was uh, the big one was when I I decided I had to go to New York City. I got to get out of Ohio. I was serious about this 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 dream 
And I got old enough to uh, really start investigating New York and buying, I remember buying Rock Scene magazine and all these different magazines that were, you know, talking about New York City and the scene in, in New York City. And at that time, you're talking about the mid 70s by then. And punk rock had happened, you know, it was beginning to happen. I was aware of these English bands through these magazines. I felt like I got to get out of Ohio. I got to go to New York City. And uh, so when I actually did manage to go to New York City, I mean, God, that changed my life. That changed my life completely because once I got to New York, it was, uh, you know, everything got very serious. I thought, well, I can, I can do this. And I, I couldn't find a guitar player that I really wanted in New York City because by then I was really aware of rockabilly. I wanted to have a rockabilly band. I wanted to be like Gene Pinson or something. And so, you know, New York City was New York City. And so I needed course, kind of a country sort of guitar player that understood rock and roll and rockabilly and kind of, you know, had, and had a, had a country, had country roots. And so uh, I knew a guy in Ohio named Michael Gene Anno, and I met him in Columbus, Ohio. <clears throat> and uh, we talked about going to New York. So when I finally went and I couldn't find the guitar player that I wanted in New York City, everybody was wanting to play punk rock. They wanted to thrash out, you know, thrashing punk rock. They're listening to the Sex Pistols and the Clash and everything. And I thought that was cool, but that's not what I wanted to do. So I eventually asked Michael Jean back in Ohio. I said, you should come to New York City, man. We can start a rockabilly band because he knew about rockabilly. We used to sit in his apartment in Columbus, Ohio and listen to Gene Vincent Charlie Parker and Captain Beefheart. I mean, in those three combinations, you know, gave us a real different sort of sound, those influences. So uh, he came to New York City. We started a band called Buzz and the Flyers. And that was, it was, a, it was, it was a pivotal time for me because I realized I was good and I could, I could do this and I could, I could maybe be a rock and roll star. I could be successful being a rock and roll star. And so, we started rehearsing. We started writing songs. We found a found a drummer. We put an ad in the Village Voice, I think it was, for a drummer. And we got a few guys coming through to audition. And this one guy came through from Brooklyn. And at the time, it was so funny because he looked like uh, Tony Manero from Saturday Night Fever. He looked like John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever. He had the high sideburns and the little short leather jacket and polyester pants and pointed leather shoes. A real... 70s Brooklyn look just like that movie and he came to audition but he was a great drummer he really understood vintage he was into Gene Krupa and all that so he really knew understood that kind of swing style he understood rock and roll he just was into that 70s look so we had to tell him we had to teach him how to dress like he was in the 1950s and he took to it really well he used to laugh at Mike and I because we wore 50s clothes he goes you guys look like my old man you know, my old man wears pants like that. Do we feel like Fred Mertz? So he used to laugh at us because we had all these 50s clothes. But eventually he started wearing them and he loved them. So, you know, then we found a bass player who kind of looked like James Dean. And it was a, the whole thing was a punk rock mentality because we I wasn't a very good guitar player. Michael Jean taught me three or four chords on the guitar, which is all I needed to know to play rockabilly. And but he was an excellent guitar player, excellent bass player. He was a real musician, and that's what you need in a band like that. So he kind of carried us musically. And then we found this bass player who came in from New Jersey, and he he came to the audition in a mo on a motorcycle, had a big motorcycle, he had a leather jacket, he had had a had red had a red quiff, red pompadour, you know, jeans with the cuff on them, motorcycle boots. The guy pulled up. It's like we want this guy in our band because he looked so cool. He looked 
perfect. He couldn't play hardly at all, but he wanted to play bass. So Michael Jean basically taught him to play the upright bass. And uh, we had a band, you know, and it was, uh, we played CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, all those places, and we got a real following. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun for a couple of years. And then another, another pivotal moment came when the Stray Cats, the Stray Cats became very successful playing rockabilly. And that, that kind of knocked the wind out of me, out of me because at that time, uh, I felt like, you know, rockabilly was something that was kind of precious to me. And the Stray Cats, I mean, got nothing, taken nothing away from them. They were very good. But, that, you know, it was just a cute, perfect little package. You know, these three white guys with the tattoos and Brian Setzer was an excellent guitar player. They had, you know, they were, they were, they were just a, kind of a perfect package for the record company to sell. And they were great live. And they broke, you know, and they became famous. And then everybody was talking about how my band sounded like the Stray Cats. And I couldn't stand it. You know, my, my ego couldn't stand that. And so I thought, ah, you know, I got to do something else now. I was kind of done with it. I got to do something else. And the Clash came to New York City and did like two weeks or something at a place called Bonds in Times Square. And they used a local band every night to open for them. And they saw my band play Buzzing the Flyers. And they asked if we wanted to open for them one night. And so we did. And their manager, a guy named Bernie Rose, Rhodes, was a, uh, he saw my band and he said, I like you, but I don't like your band. You should come to England and start a band. I'll get you, I'll introduce you to some musicians and you can, uh, you'll, you'll get yourself a record. I'll get you a record deal. All the stuff that you've been dreaming of. And I was like, okay, why not? It was a, it was a, it was a kind of a traditional move for a black artist. I mean, it goes all the way back to Josephine Baker, you know, in the, I think in the twenties, you know, going to Europe and being a huge star in Europe and not really appreciated in, in America. Everybody did it. James Baldwin went to Paris and lived in Paris as a writer. Jimi Hendrix did it. You know, he he went to England. He, he became famous out of England. And so the fact that the idea of going to London to me was like, I'm, this is this is exactly what I need to do. And so I went. I mean, another huge pivotal moment right there. I just left. I mean, I broke up the band. I said, sorry, guys, I, my heart's not in this anymore. I got to go. I got an opportunity. So I went to England. And uh, Bertie introduced me to these guys. They were playing Vic Goddard and Subway Sect. who was the second incarn incarnation of the Subway Sect. They were a popular punk band at the time in the mid-'70s, late-'70s, too. So uh, I met those guys. As soon as I got there, we clicked. They knew who I was because Buzz and the Flyers had gone to England. We had did a couple of shows in England and gone over there a couple of times. So they knew who I was. And so uh, so we started writing songs. We thought, we'd, let's see what we can do. And, uh, you know, within a year, we had a record deal with RCA Records. And, you know, then we were like number three in the charts with with Boxer Beat. And uh, I think David Bowie was number one and Duran Duran were number two. And there we were, number three in the charts, just like that. It was crazy, crazy. I mean, pivotal moment, you know, like, wow, all of a sudden my dreams had come true. You know, here I am doing exactly what I'd wanted to do since I was a kid. But, you know, we didn't take care of it. Bernie wasn't around anymore. And uh, we misbehaved terribly, you know, and 
like a lot of young bands, you know, without a mentor, without someone in control to like say, you guys should be doing this, taking steps for your career and really taking care and making the right moves, the right decisions. We just kind of blundered through the fact that we had a number three song and a, you know, hit song, the first record was kind of kiss of death because where do you go after that? You know, number two or number one or number seven, which is where it just got lucky got to. And then the third one, third single, Johnny Friendly, I think got even barely cracked the top 30. So we just went the wrong way. And so it, you know, it was a little depressing. And one thing led to another. And within a couple of years, my heart wasn't in it anymore. We were trying to recreate that success we had off the bat. And it was hard to do. So I was kind of, I was got fed up with the whole thing. And I thought maybe this, what I had was what I'm going to get doing this. And so I thought, well, I started looking around for something else to do. What else can I do? What else? You know, by then I had a bit of money. And, you know, people knew who I who I was in London, and so I started looking around. I thought, well, I tell you what happened, which was amazing. I remembered that Marlon Brando movie because I'd, I'd always loved the movies. After that, you know, I'd always loved Marlon Brando movies. You know, all through my music career, I was always into in the movies and into acting and watching actors and studying acting and not studying it formally, but just watching actors and wondering what they were doing. Just curious about that whole craft. And so I thought, maybe it's time for me to become an actor. I went to the Strasbourg Institute. I paid for a semester and I walked in and uh, I saw them doing these relaxation exercises and they're going like, ah, and everyone's like moving really strangely in the chairs and doing all this, this relaxation and and I thought, this is weird. I, you know, I just want to be an actor. I don't want to do all this weird stuff. And I was very fortunate because there was a teacher there who, who uh, took me under his wing. And he said, I understand this may seem strange to you. He said, but you should just try it. Try it and just see what happens. You pay. Just, just, just join in and see how it works for you. He encouraged me. And I did. And I fell in love with it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is, this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. And uh, everything I had done led me to that somehow. And uh, and then Anna Strasberg, Lee Strasberg's wife, came over from New York, and she, she saw me do a scene, and she offered me a scholarship. So I studied there for quite a while, and I really got into method acting and understanding the, the ins and outs of it and the technique and, and just fall in love with the craft. And what it also did, it just put me in touch with myself in a way I'd never been I used to drink a lot and take drugs and just run around, just all the stuff you do when you're in a band, especially in the 80s, you know, late 70s and 80s. That's just what you did. You, know, you, you were the odd one out if you didn't do that. And I don't know. So, but it, it made me kind of get a, take stock of myself. I, I realized that my body was my instrument. This is, you know, that's what they say. You know, I mean, I teach the method now. So your instrument. You know, you learn how to play a guitar, you learn how to play drums, you learn how to play a trumpet. That's your instrument. When you're an actor, your your body is your instrument. So, you know, you wouldn't abuse your trumpet. You wouldn't abuse your guitar. So why should you abuse your body if you're an actor? It's your instrument. So that was a huge turning point in my life because it, it straightened me out a little bit. You know, I didn't I didn't completely stop partying, but I, I was much more cautious and much more aware of the results and the, the effects of drinking and taking cocaine and staying up half the night had on me when I would try to go to 
class the next day and try to be an actor and try to work and try to, you know. So I gradually gave all that stuff up. And the good thing, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, being in rock and roll, I wanted to get rich and famous. And I didn't get rich. I got kind of famous, but not famous, famous. But people knew who I was. I had a hit record in England. I had a couple of hit records. I had a hit record in America, but not a huge hit. But getting rich and famous was a real goal. And when I started studying acting and I fell in love with that craft, becoming rich and famous just seemed like such a childish concept. You know, that's your goal to become rich and famous. It just seemed like it just seemed so silly. And I was so glad when I realized that. I said, ah, I just want to be an artist. And that's what this teacher's name is, Don Fellows. That's what he told me at Strasbourg. He says, you know, he says, you know, fall in love with your craft. Be an artist. He said, you're, he, he, he's the one who told me, he said, you're an artist. Be an artist. Embrace the fact that you're an artist. I had never thought about that before. I never thought that I was an artist. I thought I was a singer in a rock and roll band, you know, or a pop group or something. And that concept really made me appreciate myself in a way. And and uh, rich and famous, he said, just just do your work. Get really good at what you do, and everything else will fall in place if it's meant to. And I started working as an actor. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I started working as an actor in London and being a, you know, an African-American in London at that time. There weren't a whole lot of us there. So I had an opportunity to work as an actor much more than I would have if I'd have been in Los Angeles because the competition in Los Angeles was so fierce. Being over there, I had more opportunities. So I was able to work and really hone my skills and get good at it and understand how to work in front of a camera. and you know, work on lines and develop a character. And, you know, so that was really valuable. And uh, I got into a big show, Five Guys Named Mo in, Lo in London. And it was a hit show, ran for five years. And I tell you, talk about learning a craft, you know, having to repeat a performance, you know, as an actor, having to repeat a performance night after night, you know, eight shows a week. I mean, the discipline it takes to do that. Uh, and sing as well, being in a musical and having to sing. I mean, if you just have to act, okay, you can almost bullshit your way through that. And, you know, with a hangover, I mean, a lot of actors have. But if you got to sing, you can't bullshit your way through it. You got to sing. You got to hit the notes. You got to be in tune. You can't be flat. You got to know how to sing that song. And that adds a whole nother um, pressure to it and a whole nother uh, discipline. So having to do that for five years, it just really got me in good shape. And I really began to understand what this craft called for and what was needed. So I really took it seriously. So by the time I moved to Los Angeles in 1995, you know, I had to start over here because all the stuff I did in England, they didn't care about. You know, so I had to start over. You know, that was a pivotal point right there on moving to Los Angeles because it's like, well, now you got a lot of competition. You're in Hollywood, man. You know, this is the big time. <laughs> this is the entertainment capital of the world. And competition was stiff. And But I persevered. And I eventually started working as an actor in Los Angeles. And uh, and it was great. You know, I eventually I did a lot of the CSI shows and, uh, you know, guest stars and co-stars on TV shows. I did some films. You know, I did some films with Ray Liotta. I did a film with Sylvester Stallone in London, Judge Dredd, which kind of was kind of an embarrassment at the end of the day. But, you know, it was in a movie with Sylvester Stallone. So, uh, you know, so it, it kind of all worked out.
Today, Dig teaches theater and writes poetry. He's always been a poet, even since his days when he was a rock star. And today, he's got a couple of books published. Dig has graciously agreed to read one of his recent works. This one's called A Case of the Particulars. So sit in the darkness, being sure the light of stars not yet born shine in your soul. I lay my head in the bosom of life, and so pause, uncertain of each day's bounty, but grateful for touch and blood. This prison of dermis keeps me earthbound, my lungs fueled, my senses engaged, filling my basket with unripened fruit for want of a palate I'll never slake. Swimming in visceral waters, mind out of gear, body imagination projects sounds, textures, smells, emotions, broad vistas of all that has passed through me on razor sharp black pinwheels just out of reach. On second thought, if I could shred every poem I ever wrote into confetti or better yet, transpose them onto ticker tape and blizzard returning vintage astronauts parading around lower Manhattan in their crew cut convertibles while mixed race metaphors are subjected to segregated drinking fountains, as it were. Suffering the indignity of my babbled tongue licking walls of heartache afraid to swallow as the pain might be a ticket to the truth. For now, it's off my chest, so I will retire on my thorny laurels, plucking out irregular, ill-fitting words like jumpy coffee stains that never hold still long enough to strike the bullseye with real certainty. The problem with beautiful things, there are too many of them. It's hard to know where to begin. Therefore, I won't. I'll just lay my head in the bosom of life, and so, pause. Thank you, Dig, for taking the time to tell your story. He'll be on tour this summer in the UK with the Joe Boxers, and they'll have a new Best Of collection being released this June, so be on the lookout for that. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artists and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Redux, is also available wherever you buy your books. If you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. Till next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.